Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. To kick off the highlights of the updated emergency medicine conference from Whistler in February this year, we have with us Dr. David Carr talking about shock. Dr. David Carr is an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, Division of Emergency Medicine at the University of Toronto. He serves as the assistant professor of education, risk management, and faculty development at the University Health Network. In 2009, he was the recipient of both undergraduate and postgraduate clinical teaching awards, and in 2010, he co-authored a chapter in Tintinelli's. David is one of Canada's best public speakers in emergency medicine, which really brought together all the main key elements in managing these patients without getting too bogged down in detail. So without further ado, here's Dr. Carr on shock. So I was taught shock with a great mnemonic. Why I like this mnemonic is I always loved the fact that anaphylactic started with a K. I always liked that it was a bit odd. So I went over this septic, spinal, hypovolemic, hemorrhagic, obstructive, cardiogenic, and that good mnemonic that you had to make fit. So that's how I was taught. And I've kind of tried to change my practice a little bit. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about shock today, and we're going to talk about how to survive sepsis. The first half of my talk is how to survive sepsis, because I think that's more important than all the other stuff we do. We're going to review shock in the new millennium. So... um, Dr. John Collins Warren is a physician who worked in Vienna and at Mass General, and he said, shock, a momentary pause in the act of death. Wrong. We are not going to let that be shock. It's a momentary pause in the act of life. We just have to make sure they get there. So we're going to talk about a first case. First case is a very dear case to my heart. A 38-year-old female working in the eMERGE. She's unwell for a week. She's got a cough and cold. Now, she's an eMERGE doc, and she's one of those docs in your group who would never call in sick. She's old school. She'd never call in sick. And uh, she's super healthy. Medications, none, past med, nothing. And her vitals are pretty crappy. She's got a heart rate of 140, a little bit hypoxic, a little bit tachypnic. And this is not a low normal because she's a young, healthy, vibrant female. This is a serious blood pressure problem. So I get a text, 37.5. Lactate 2.8, white cell 4, creatinine 120, chest x-ray right, lower pneumonia. And my response to this text is, it's just sepsis, who the hell cares? This is like my closest friend who we collaborate all medicine stuff. Her response was, it's me. And I said, holy shit. And I was on the phone trying to text back what to do and stuff like that. And it's scary stuff. And what I want to do is talk about how to survive sepsis. And this starts in 2012, is the most current iteration of the surviving sepsis guideline. And we got to make sure this person survives, and we got to stay up to date on this topic. So first, a little bit of nomenclature. So these are important kind of definitions that you need to know. So SIRS, greater than two or four of the following. Are they febrile? Are they tachycardic? Are they tachypnic? Do they have a white count or a left shift? Remember... Every single panic attack has SIRS by definition, right? They're all tachycardic and tachypnic. It's half our waiting room. So you kind of have to ask, are they actually infected? And then when you say, are they infected, you have to say, well, if they're infected and they have SIRS, then they have sepsis. But recall that that means every single febrile, 
22-year-old kid with pneumonia who has a fever and a heart rate greater than 90 has sepsis. That is the correct diagnosis. It sounds like an overcall, but as far as nomenclature goes, they have sepsis. Accept it, bill for it, they have sepsis, okay? When you think about septic shock, this is sepsis after two liters. And the key thing here is severe sepsis is sepsis plus poor organ perfusion. Today's talk is about perfusion. That's a very important thing. And really what seems to be the transition point for aggressive therapy is hypertension after two liters or a lactate of four. Those are kind of the sphincter tightening tone moments that you should be aware of in patients who you're suspecting with sepsis. When you think about severe sepsis, we think about multi-organ dysfunction and we think about different things going wrong. Lactate is something, I like to think of it as the new D-dimer. You know, there was a days when nurses ordered all D-dimers and we hate that. Now they order all lactates and 95% we love it, except on that 18-year-old who's got gastro and has a high lactate and you wanted to send him home and you end up keeping him longer. But lactates are wonderful and we're really good at doing that. Looking at urine output as a way of looking at pressure, looking at lung injuries, looking at creatinine. And when you see someone who's septic and thrombocytopenic, be afraid because they are super sick. When you start to see hematologic changes in the blood of someone who's sepsis, you should be nervous. Okay? Low platelets, higher mortality in people who have sepsis. When you look at mortality risk relative to lactate levels, and you can see once you hit four, you sky-high jump. Sky-high jump to the fact of a study by Howell showed that patients with a lactate of four without hypotensive septic shock had a mortality of greater than 25%. And it's an independent predictor of mortality. You need to respect your lactate and you need to call the unit. If you have a high lactate, your con consultants will say, wow, are they intubated? Well, not yet, but they're lactate six, you need to come down. Are they on pressors? No, they're lactate six or seven. They're a sick person, you need to come down. This person is not just for your floor who gets vitals Q shift. This is a much more serious step-down type patient. So Scott Weingart, who's a great eMERGE educator, he said, shock is not ruled out by a normal blood pressure. It's about the perfusion, not the pressure. And that's really the fundamental change that I think we all have to embrace. Hypotension is not defined by the physician, but rather the patient. Hypotension is not defined by the physician, but rather the, the patient. There's no specific number for which the MAP is too low. This is looking at perfusion and seeing if there's evidence of low perfusion. Is there cardiac or renal dysfunction? Is there tissue ischemia? What's the lactate production? You need to look at those things. It's not just the blood pressure. There are people in this room sitting here with a blood pressure of 85 over 60, and they could cross country for the next three days and their pulse would be 60. That's just them. You can't look at blood pressure alone. Blood pressure is overrated. Management. So when the surviving sepsis criteria came out, they looked at resuscitation. They talked about a goal to restore perfusion and oxygenation. And they break it down into the first three hours and six hours and thereafter. Ten years ago, I would have said we're responsible for the first three hours. Ten years later, we're clearly responsible for the next six hours because these people don't go upstairs where I work in six hours. And you can't just abandon them to your consultant and say, yeah, when you have a chance to see them, you just look after them. No, they're in your department. They're sick. You need to care for them. That critical period. 
So when they talk about surviving sepsis, they talk about bundles. And this three-hour bundle is something we own and we do so well already. Getting lactate, the nurses in your hospital, I bet you are great at it. Lactate everyone with a fever. Measure cultures prior to antibiotics. 30% of septic people will have a positive blood culture, but still an important thing to do. Administer broad-spectrum antibiotics and give a bolus of 30 per kilo, so roughly two liters in a gent who's 70 kilos, okay? And look for lactates. So we're going to talk about fluids and antibiotics and source control because that's the first step of resuscitation. One of the things that you need to realize is if the nurse has already asked you that they can't get access, it's time to drill bone. If a nurse and the three oldest nurses in your department are all sitting there pin-cushioning the patient, they've all tried, they're, they're working on the ankle, it's time to throw in an IO. An IO is a 15-gauge. It gives 2.5 liters per hour in the tibia and 5 liters an hour in the proximal humerus. If you can't get an, I, an IV access in two, two tries or two minutes, it's time for an IO. I'm not talking about people who have... Uh, minor complaints. I'm talking about people in septic shock. There's no time to fart around with IVs. You need access. Why an IO? So here's a study looking at proximal humerus interosseous infusion, and it's an ER study looking at peripheral IVs, central venous catheters, and a proximal humerus IO. The proximal humerus is faster in terms of 90 seconds versus those other devices, be it a peripheral or a central. The pain scores are higher. But what you should know about the pain is it's not the drill, which is what we all think. It's giving them the infusion. So when you're going to drill them, afterwards, give them 30 to 40 milligrams of lidocaine off your suture cart. So two to three, two to two, three cc's of the 1%. You give them that as a push, and then you give them medication. And you can give any medication through this. This is a, a success rate of 80.6%. And in subsequent studies, it's 93%. These are very easy to do. They are very quick to put in. When time matters, like it does in sepsis, we are underutilizing interosseous devices. So IOs are underutilized in patients in shock. The indications for an IO are if two tries at a peripheral IVs or two minutes have gone by with trying for a peripheral IV in a sick patient, you want to go for your IO. The proximal humerus is your location of choice as compared to a tibia or any other place because it's fast. It takes about 90 seconds to get in and you can run the fluid fast as well at 5 liters an hour compared to 2.5 liters an hour in the tibia. IOs do tend to have a higher pain rating than a peripheral IV. It's not because of the drilling but because of the infusion. So you can avoid this by giving 1 to 2 cc's of 1% xylocaine into the IO just before you start the infusion. What studies show is that IO has a high rate of success compared to peripheral and central IVs. So in a shocky patient, when your nurses haven't got two good IVs secured within two minutes, you want to be reaching for that drill. What about fluids? So you, you're going to get access and then you have to give fluids. So which ones? What we still know is crystalloids remain the choice for initial fluid resuscitation, 30 per kilo. At least someone needs two to three liters before you start thinking about colloids such as albumin. And in terms of transfusion, which really we're not going to talk about unless you have a, hype, a hemorrhagic shocky patient, you really want a trigger of less than 70, okay? 
Albumin? Who here has ordered albumin for a shocky patient in the eMERGE? Yeah, me neither. Kind of what you should know about albumin, apart from it's expensive, people in the blood bank don't like it, is there's no difference when compared to saline, except there's decreased mortality in severe sepsis. So our friends upstairs will say, after three, four liters, you might consider giving some albumin. But it is not a common thing that we start downstairs. How much fluid? That's an important question, and how do we know how much fluid? So, you know, the intensivists will talk about MAP, and, and I kind of told you that it's overrated, and uh, everyone's blood pressure is different. Urine output's a good surrogate. CVP's great if you put in uh, swans and all that, which I don't do. Again, another, this is more follow-to-the-rivers protocol that looked at early goal-directed and getting intensive monitoring. But really looking at lactate normalization and looking at ultrasound markers are a really important way of developing a fluid status that what you need. And we're going to talk a bit about that in the second half of the talk. Antibiotics and source control. Administer effective antibiotics within the first hour of recognition. And recognition equals the time that sepsis crosses your mind. When you think that person is septic, you need to think what antibiotic. You can wait for the ID folks to look smart. You know, they get the cultures back and they, you know, they say, David, you were wrong. They need her to pen them. They got ESBL. Who cares, right? They look smart because they get the culture results. What you need to do is do not let your consultants ever prescribe antibiotics. If you are letting them prescribe antibiotics, you are selling us out as a, as a profession. You can ask them for help if you don't know, but you need to start it early in your shocky patients. You don't wait. You want to use a broad spectrum, and you want to use greater than one agent that will affect the most likely bug and capable of penetrating the source. There's a 7 to 15% mortality if these are started in eMERGE in the first hours. One of my big pet peeves is we have a septic shock patient. You order fluids. You order ceftriaxone and flagyl. You know, the nurses are waiting for those, that fluid to get in, and you've you got someone with meningitis. You want that vanco, that ceph in. So then finally you convince them to put the ceftriaxone in. Can you get the vanco in? Oh, well, we're, we're waiting for the ceftriaxone to finish when that's done. No, 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 no. Those bugs need to be in now. We don't piggyback one after the other. You give me as much access as you need to get those antibiotics in. Do not wait. If you have a septic shock patient, all the mortality data is getting antibiotics in the first hour. Make sure you give it. Don't wait for that drip dry. Oh, by the way, the ceftriaxone's finished. Can you come over and change it? No, no, no. You need to give it right away. So just to go over some pathogens, some kind of uh, shotgun approach, you want to use two drugs. You want to use, and it's a, a presumed respiratory source, an anti-pneumococcal, anti-pseudomonal drug. Think of one, Piptazo is a good answer. Okay? Plus, you want to add a second agent. Often, it's Levo. When you think about Levo and Moxie, think about the following. Levo is better than Moxie for lungs because Levo has pseudomonal coverage. Levo is better than Moxie for urine because it's excreted in the urine. Moxie is better for skin, and Moxie is better for abdo infections and stuff like that. But Levo is a better rest choice because of your anti-pseudomonal agent. But it's two big guns in septic shock. So just to review there quickly, for treatment of septic shock that has a suspected respiratory pathogen, you need to use two big guns. The first big gun choices are piptase, that's 4.5 grams IVQ8H, 
You can also use imipenem or cefepime. And your choices here are either levo or an aminoglycoside with azithromycin. One pearl that Dr. Carr pointed out was that levo is generally better for respiratory and urine pathogens, whereas moxie is generally better for skin and abdo pathogens. Then you have to ask yourself, if you have a patient who has been antibiotic experienced, meaning you've been to eMERGE way too many times and gotten way too many doses of ceftriaxone or way too many doses of Cipro because someone labeled you Cipropenic, then this is a patient who needs a big gun, something we don't use all the time, something like gentamicin. It's a real underrated drug. Think about using drugs that people don't use often. So when you see abdominal sepsis, think about something like Ampgent Flagyl. Ampcephalagyl if they're not antibiotic experience. And for the most part, clindamycin is not a drug used in sepsis. Why? In abdominal stuff, three quarters is resistant to bacteroides, which is a big bug problem, and 40% in Toronto to group A strep. Clinda's good for toxic shock because of, and neck fash because of endotoxin production, but for the most part, Clinda, despite ENT's love affair with it, is not a good septic drug choice. Let's talk about septic shock NYD. You don't have a source. Vanco, Piptazo. Keep it simple. Two drugs, cover the bugs, cover all your sources. That's where you're going to go. Notice I'm not using sucky drugs. I am not a big antibiotic prescriber. But now's not the time to be cheap when you have people in septic shock. The other thing is keep calm and ventilate on. These people, you look at these people huffing and puffing on the non-rebreather, these people need to purchase plastic and throw it down their throat. These people need to be intubated. And septic patients get a lot of diffuse alveolar damage. So they all go into ARDS and they always say, well, it's the eMERGE doc, you gave too much fluid, you're in ARDS. No, this is the pathophysiology of sepsis. And what we want to do is we want to eliminate the work of breathing, eliminate the metabolic demands, because this is 30% of their demands. And because they get ARDS, you want a lung protective strategy for their ventilation. Low tidal volumes, some PEEP, and plateau pressures, and you need a good RT. Because these are people you don't just ignore the alarms and just say, who cares, I got the tube in, fantastic. You need to do more. So we did the first three hours, we got cultures, we get fluid, we get antibiotics, now we gotta say, is there anything else? So in the first six hours, so these patients are stuck in our ED, the nurse is saying, well, ICU hasn't come down. Dave, can you help out? So this is when you think about vasopressors, and these are when you think about which direction is the lactate going. So we're going to talk a little bit about further resuscitation. So vasopressors are there to restore MAP. They reverse the vasodilation, and they restore tissue perfusion without using fluids. Now, do not use the caveat until a patient has received adequate fluent challenges. We're all kind of sucky with, oh, they have a bad ventricle, we should just give them 400 cc's. No, these people need tons of fluid, especially if they have a high lactate. All vasopressors can, approve, can be infused peripherally, but eventually they'll need a central line. Remember, they can go through an IO as well. And, rem and there's a study down the pipes that in the next year or two, when you look at this conference again, there'll be a study saying that vasopressors can be given in an antecubital in a 15 gauge. This is what the future holds. That's going to be there. So I think for now, these all can be given peripherally, but eventually you're going to need central access. 
When you need a push dose presser, when you're in trouble, whether you're about to intubate some person, they're crashing, they're shocky, you, you, you've been giving them fluids, you're waiting in line, probably the best drug is fennel. Phenylephrine is so easy to use. It's not without problems, but one of the great things about it is there's no extravasation risk. So it can be given peripherally for months if you had to. Not that you ever would. Um, what you do is you go to your cart, and they have these 10 milligram per mil vials. You take one mil or 10 milligrams and you add it to a 100 mil mini bag. Each mil, therefore, is 100 mics. That is your dose. Write this down. Take one mil of the vial that you keep in recess. Add it to a 100 mil bag and give them one mil push. You just gave them 100 mics of fennel. Repeat every two minutes until you or your colleague have put in your central axis or the patient is stabilized. This is your temporizing measure and it's a great option and it's so easy to do. Dopamine, it's dead. Should not be in any of your eMERGE departments. It has no place anymore. It's an extinct drug. There's nothing good about it. Why do people like it? People like dopamine because the nurses are familiar with it. Because we have pre-mixed bags of it. But it's not a great drug. Kind of a meta-analysis comparing several studies in the Surviving Sepsis Guideline goes over it. And this is based from what's called the SOAP2 trial, which looks at dopamine versus norepi. And what you see is differences in real arrhythmias. And that's the problem with dopamine, especially in your cardiogenic shocky patients, is you have much more concerning arrhythmias. And there's some mortality data if you include a big cohort of cardiogenic shock patients. The other misconception is that, oh, well, dopamine, you can run it peripherally for a little bit. You can run everything peripherally for a little bit. So don't think norepi is any more unsafe than dopa peripherally. First line for all causes of shock, no matter what, is norepi, okay? And if you're going to add a second agent, norepi should be maxed out. If they're not getting better, you have to ask yourself, what am I missing? So think about the checklist, the what am I missing checklist. Go through these steps when patients aren't getting better. Firstly, you haven't given them enough fluids. Nine times out of ten, this is the problem. Fluids, 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 you're being sucky, you're not giving them enough fluids. That's the problem. Okay, I gave them a lot of fluid. If they're hypocalcemic, they need some inotropy, you've got to correct their calcium. That will help the pump work. If they're bleeding, you can give all the fluids in the world, but if you have a ruptured ectopic, you need blood and a surgeon. Okay? For hemorrhagic shock, you need blood. You have an FOB, it's positive, someone's bleeding, you need blood, not fluids. Toxicologic issues. I love intralipid. I think it's the best drug in the world. When people fail conventional antidotes in the setting of an overdose, one wants to think about lipid emulsion therapy for unstable overdoses. And that's a whole talk on its own, but I love it. Um, endocrine. Is this person an adrenal crisis? Do they have pituitary apoplexy or something like that? Do they need thyroxin? Are they myxedematous? Think about this. And if they're allergic, remember I said this morning, there's a cohort of people who present in shock with hypotension alone with no findings of an allergic reaction that you're historically trained to look for. Think about using epi. If they have a PE, think about TPA. And if you've answered no to all those questions, add the second vasopressor. So this is the checklist you go through after your first vasopressor hasn't stabilized the patient. First, think about more fluids. Next, correct the calcium if it's low. Third, give blood if they're bleeding. Fourth, if it's a toxicologic issue, 
think about giving intralipid therapy if it's a hydrophilic drug. Next, think about endocrine causes. They could need a stress dose of hydrocortisone, or it could be an adrenal crisis, or they could be in a myxedema coma requiring thyroxin. Remember that anaphylactic shock can present without the typical features of rash and swelling, and so consider epinephrine if you think the patient might be in anaphylactic shock. And finally, think about the possibility of a PE causing the shock, and in that case you would give TPA. Next, Dr. Carr is going to talk about, after you've gone through this entire list, adding a second vasopressor, what your choices are. Okay, the second vasopressor is two questions. Is their heart contracting well? If you're good at ultrasound, throw it on and look at the heart. If it's doing all those nice contracting things well, then add vasopressin at a fixed dose, and often you'll be able to turn down your norepi. If the heart's doing this, or your heart rate's very low, then you want epinephrine as a potential inotrope. Okay, and we talked about that a bit this morning. And then with full inotropic support, you're looking at something like dobutamine. Okay? Steroids. The evidence in every other condition is it's hard to say. The inane trial in 2002 made steroids sound wonderful for shock. Now with corticus, it's kind of been debunked. And what you would say is no pressors, no roids. You really want to use steroids for vasopressor-resistant shock. And this is a 2C recommendation, and it's hydrocortisone. Okay? Let's go back to that patient. ER doc on shift, tachycardic, shocky, refused to call in sick. Five liters, her lactate went from 2.8 to 3.2. After 15 hours, she started to pee. Her lactate started to fall. Her white count was four. The only people who care about white counts are radiologists. It's their irrelevant tests. They're helpful if you're a febrile neutropenic, but everyone else, it doesn't matter. It went up the next day. What the most important thing on her care is that within 30 minutes, she was hammered with antibiotics. Hammered with antibiotics. Dr. Carr's slide here shows that she received ceftriaxone, azithro, and vanco within 30 minutes. And see, she got vanco. I was texting her, please make sure they give you vanco because you have to think about MRSA in healthcare workers with severe pneumonia. Now, she grew strep pneumo in her blood and she was back at work in a month, but she picked the right place to be, get septic shock, which is in an emergency department where you work and people love you and stuff like that. Dr. Carr moves on to another case here. So he came in with a heart rate of 105, and the nurse did bilateral blood pressures. I don't know, every time they do bilateral blood pressures, I feel like they automatically have a dissection. But they did, and remember, 20% of the time, your, your blood pressure is different than 20, and 53% of the time, normal people's blood pressure is different than 10. But nonetheless, that's a concerning blood pressure. And it's a concerning blood pressure of a 63-year-old male with sudden onset of 10 out of 10 back pain from the abdomen and chest pain. He's never had this before. He's a hypertensive, diabetic, hype C, peptic ulcer disease, alcoholic, swearing racist, screaming patient. <laughs> Lovely. Okay? He's on a bunch of meds, metformin, aspirin. What do you think's wrong with this guy? Dissection. Sure, that's my thought. What else could be? MI, for sure. PE. Borhovs. Absolutely. Does he perf? So those are all good thoughts. I, every time I see amitriptyline, I feel like it's going to be an overdose of a TCA and I get to use intralipid, but it wasn't the case here. Okay? So obvious distress, screaming, swearing, asking for vitamin D. You guys know what vitamin D is? It's not that thing that prevents osteoporosis, right? He's asking for Demerol repeatedly. I'm disliking him more by the minute. 
And um, these are his vitals, as we showed. Chest is clear. Cardiovascular normal heart sound is JVP's flat. His abdominal exam, he's diffuse all over and his FOB is negative. And a portable chest and ECG are normal. So management, I'm ABCing this guy, right? Doing what we do best, ABCs. And I'm thinking about my way of doing it, the shock way. So I'm thinking septic, well, he could be septic shock, but he doesn't have a fever. And spinal, he didn't fall, so it's not that. Hypovolemic, well, for sure, hemorrhagic. I mean, his FOB is neg, but, you know, obstructive. Could he have a PE? Well, he doesn't have leg symptoms, but he could. Um, does he have a dissection? That's definitely was my thought, my prevailing thought. And an MI, it could be, but his ECG was normal. Anaphylactic, remember? But didn't have a rash, didn't have a story, didn't have an exposure. What about ultrasound? So I went through the rush steps. Does he have a pericardial effusion? No. Does he have LVH? Does he have RV strain? No, no, no. That's, two, that's 10 seconds. 15? Done. Then I went through his tank volume. His IVC is just collapsing big time. So what I know is that he is not getting, the, he is definitely someone who's going to need fluids. Doesn't tell me everything, but he's going to be fluid responsive. I look at it for, um, I look for it's his tank if it's leaky. I look at a fast, you know, maybe he's bled from something. It's completely normal. Look at his ultrasound. Well, before I had looked at the ultrasound, his chest x-ray was normal. He didn't have a tension pneumo and he didn't have pulmonary edema. So then I went to his, his abdomen, difficult to examine, but no AAA, and I went through the thoracic aortic flap thing. Well, there was no flap, but that is not enough sensitivity to rule out this problem. I'm not confident on my TTE to rule out a, 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 um, a dissection on a hypotensive back pain patient who's dying in front of me. And then I didn't look for a DVT because I didn't think it was important. So I get some blood work back got that bad lactate, which always makes you nervous, right? Over four, be nervous. And uh, the rest of his blood work are pretty normal, except he's drunk. No big deal. He's probably not even that drunk. Um, any additional tests? Who wants additional tests? CT chest abdo. So ultrasound guides your treatment and workup, but it's not the be-all and end-all. I still thought this guy could very well have a dissection or something else. I gave him his fluids. I got his lactate down. I was doing my job. His BP normalized. I did the CT chest abdopelvic, and what they found is he has bad pancreatitis. His amylase is normal, and he had distributive shock secondary to pancreatitis. So I needed some additional text, but I knew what he needed as his treatment, which was fluids, 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 fluids. And that's what I did. Last case, tachycardic, hypoxic, tachypnic, she woke up normal, she's eating breakfast, and suddenly she's short of breath. She's driven by her son to emerge. You've got to love those people who don't burden the ambulances. And her SATs were 68%. She was cyanotic, and she had a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer three weeks ago, and she was waiting her Whipples next week. Um, she's on no medications. The diagnosis? PE. Excellent. So what do you want to do? So a portable chest was normal. Blood work's normal, except she had a trope. I rush the ultrasound. I do everything and I find that her RV's huge. She's, you know, the normal is 1 to 0.6. Her RV's bigger than her LV. What now? I go through the other steps. None of these. And I say to myself, I'm done. I don't need to do the full rush for everyone. I have an obvious cause. So I move on. I move on and I say, she's got a submassive PE. And I give her some anoxaparin. And I write these guidelines because I think this is something I want to kind of reiterate because I always have this discussion. 
A 25-year-old woman on the pill gets a D-dimer and it's positive. We end up giving her some anoxaparin and bringing her back the next day for CT. Sound familiar? When people have a PE with a pretest probability of 100%, we do not wait for imaging. We don't do it on 26-year-old women on the pill. We should not do it on people who are pre-death. The CHESS guidelines in 2012 say anticoagulate high-risk PEs prior to testing. If it's moderate risk, it's within four hours. So if you have a delay in imaging greater than four hours, you should anticoagulate. And if it's low risk, 24 hours is acceptable. This is high risk. This person needs anticoagulation. TPA. Does she fit? Is she hemodynamic and stable? Does she have cardiogenic shock? Does she have lymph compromise? Who wants to lyse her? There's a study called the Moppet trial, not a great study. It usually gets Joel Yaffe shaking your head when you talk Moppet. But what it was is it's a, a non-blinded RCT looking at a safe low-dose TPA for submassive PE. Unlike the Constantinidis trial, which is the 100 milligrams, they gave a total of 50, 10 plus 40, which is a low dose. Their primary endpoint was pulmonary hypertension and recurrent PEs, not really an ED endpoint. And their secondary thing was mortality. They had 120 patients with 28 months of follow-up. And the key thing is that these people had a big absolute risk reduction, so a number needed to treat of 2.5 for pulmonary hypertension. No increased bleeding, no mortality benefit. This is kind of like the NINS trial, where TPA for stroke, instead of saving lives, it saves autonomy. This people maybe makes you improve your quality of life. The question is, how do you define a submassive PE? Whether it's ECG, echo, or trope, it's hard to say. And how do you define hemodynamic instability? Is someone who's hypoxic at 68, tacky at 130, hemodynamically instable? I'm not sure. So, but she didn't let me think too long. She became drowsy. She dropped her pressure. I called for the TPA. It needs to be mixed. It takes time. I decided to tube her because she was going down the hill. I pushed dose presser her with some fennel. She goes into a PE rest. My nurse is still mixing up that TPA till finally I grab it and bang it in. She gets 50 of TPA, which is the push dose drug. She has Ross within a minute, and she walks out of the hospital. This is the, the next one I thrombolysis submassive. These are patients that need discussions. So what are some final thoughts? What can I tell you about shock? Treat perfusion, not the pressure. Blood pressure is overrated. Watch the lactate. Always ask for lactate and always follow lactate. If you think they need an antibiotics, don't be cheap. Give it to them. There's times to be cheap. Sepsis is not one of them. They all need more fluids. Whatever you think you've given enough, you haven't. Get comfy with pressors and get comfy with norepi and push dopamine in the closet. Have a what am I missing checklist to go through those septic shocky patients and develop an ultrasound-based approach. Well, there you've got it. Dr. Carr's amazing lecture on shock management and approach. Dr. Carr did go over the RUSH protocol in his lecture, which was very visual-based, so I didn't include it in the podcast. But I do recommend going to emcrit.org, Scott Weingart's site, where they do have some great material on the RUSH protocol. It saved my butt many times.
Since Dr. Carr's lecture, there's been some more literature on thrombolysis for a submassive PE. So let's talk a little bit more about that. While thrombolysis for massive PE has become pretty much standard of care, it's still not so clear for submassive PE. First, as Dr. Carr alluded to, it's hard to define what submassive PE is, but here's a shot at the best definition. Submassive PE is an acute PE without shock, so the patient must have a systolic blood pressure of greater than 90, but with either RV dysfunction or elevated troponin. So an RV dysfunction would be defined as at least one of the following. RV dilatation or RV systolic dysfunction on echo, RV dilatation on CT, or an elevated BNP, or ECG changes suggestive of RV dysfunction, that is, a new, complete, or incomplete right bundle branch block, anteroseptal ST elevation or depression, or anteroseptal T-wave inversion. So realistically, in most emerges in Canada, where it's difficult to get a formal echo or a BNP in your ED, we're finding submassive PEs in patients who either have ECG changes of RV strain or an elevated troponin. It's worth asking your radiologist specifically if there's evidence of RV dilatation on the CT. There have been three key trials looking at thrombolysis for submassive PE, and they are the MAPIT-3 trial, the MOPIT trial that Dr. Carr alluded to, and the PETHO trial, which just came out in April 2014. So the first trial was the MAPIT-3 trial in 2002. It was a double-blinded RCT of 256 patients with submassive PE. And they looked at heparin plus 100 milligrams of alteplase, or heparin plus placebo over a period of two hours. The primary endpoint was in-hospital death or clinical deterioration requiring an escalation of treatment, which was defined as a catecholamine infusion, secondary thrombolysis, uh, getting tubed, CPR, emergency embolectomy, or thrombus fragmentation by catheter. No difference was shown for in-hospital mortality, but there were more cases of clinical deterioration requiring therapy escalation in the group of patients treated with heparin alone. In this study, surprisingly, there was no significant difference in the incidence of major bleeding between the two groups. They concluded that, quote, Treatment with alteplase given in conjunction with heparin may improve the clinical course of patients with acute submassive pulmonary embolism, and in particular, that such treatment may prevent further clinical or hemodynamic deterioration requiring the escalation of treatment during the hospital stay. The next trial was the Moppet trial. It enrolled pretty sick PE patients who were tachypneic, hypoxic, tachycardic, and they used and they used an anatomical definition, which was greater than 70% thrombotic occlusion of lobar or main pulmonary arteries on CT. Unfortunately, this group did not fit the standard definition of submassive PE. That is, they didn't look at RV dysfunction, elevated trope, or BNP. The intervention group got half-dose thrombolysis, so dose TPA at 50 milligrams rather than 100 milligrams. The primary outcome was long-term development of pulmonary hypertension, which was reduced significantly more in the half-dose thrombolysis group. However, there was no mortality benefit and no significant difference in recurrent PE. 
Interestingly, there was also no difference in bleeding, but some argue that the bleeding rates were too low to detect a difference given the power of the study. The third trial is the PITHO trial, P-E-I-T-H-O trial, which was just published in April 2014. It was a randomized, double-blind trial with more than a 1,000 patients, so pretty impressive cohort, comparing full-dose tenecteplase plus heparin with placebo plus heparin in normotensive patients with submassive PE, according to a definition that included both RV dysfunction and a positive trope. They looked at death and hemodynamic decompensation, as well as bleeding. There was no significant difference in 7- or 30-day mortality, but there was less hemodynamic instability in the lytic group. This benefit came at the expense of a significant increase in major hemorrhage, including intracranial hemorrhage, especially in patients over the age of 75. They concluded that in patients with intermediate-risk pulmonary embolism, lytic therapy prevented hemodynamic compensation, but increased the risk of major hemorrhage and stroke. So based on these studies and others that tell us that the more anatomically extensive the PE is and the shorter the duration of symptoms are, the more likely lytics will be beneficial, I give you this one approach to contemplate. So here it is. This is just my opinion. For patients under the age of 75 with absolutely no contraindications to thrombolysis, with a fresh acute PE of just a few hours that's anatomically extensive on the CT and who fulfill the definition of submassive PE that I outlined before, because we know that half-dose lytic probably does not significantly increase the risk of major bleeding and may prevent pulmonary hypertension, as well as decrease the risk of cardiovascular instability, it wouldn't be unreasonable to give half-dose lytic for submassive PE. Suffice to say that you should be monitoring your submassive PE patients very carefully, and if there's a whiff of cardiovascular tanking, that is, if the systolic blood pressure does fall below 90, then in the absence of contraindications, you should be ready to give lytic immediately. Next up in the highlights of our Whistler conference is Dr. Lisa Thurger talking about an update in toxicology. Dr. Thurger is an emergency physician at the Ottawa Hospital and has a Master's of Science from the University of British Columbia and a Fellowship in Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology from the University of Toronto. She's currently an Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto and is a Clinical Toxicologist at the Ontario Poison Centre. Academic interests, projects, and publications include areas of education combined with both emergency medicine and toxicology. So here's Dr. Thurger giving us a whole slew of pearls with some great tox cases. Okay, so the first case. This is an 18-month-old boy who's brought into your emergency department, and he's being wheeled in by the paramedics. And they tell you that they were called to the home because mom found him flaccid and unresponsive. Okay, he's a healthy 18-month-old boy, no past medical history, no regular medications, but today he was diagnosed with otitis media by his family physician who prescribed a week's course of amoxicillin, and mom gave him the first dose. Being sort of a bratty 18-month-old who doesn't like medication, spat most of it out, and so she promptly gave a second dose. And other than that, he's a healthy kid. And then shortly afterwards, he turned blue and was unresponsive. 
the paramedics report these vitals. So he had a heart rate of 150, he had a blood pressure of 80 over 55, a rest rate of 6, and he was satting 88% on room air. So while they're bringing him in, though, they're bagging him appropriately, and his sats are perfect now that he's being bagged. So he definitely pinks up um, and can be bagged quite well. He's flaccid. There's no signs of trauma. Um, and now he's sitting in front of you in the emergency department. So for those of you who might be like me, who don't deal with kids a lot, now my heart rate's 150, and here's a little kid in front of you who's not doing so well. Most of you probably do more peds than I do. So what are we going to do with this patient? Who's going to intubate him? We're going to do ABCs. We're all good at that. Intubation? Narcan? Okay, why would you give Narcan? You think he's a heroin addict? You think he's overdosed on opioid? Maybe. So why did you say? Because of a respirate of six, perhaps? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting respirate, right? If you look at those vital signs, it's probably the most interesting and concerning vital sign that you will see there. Okay, so in kids, the dose is 0.01 milligrams per kilogram of naloxone. And we see maybe there's an opioid toxidrome here. He's got a respirate of six. We could look for other signs of opioid toxidrome, check out the pupils, listen for bowel sounds, look for track marks in this 18-month-old, right? So it seems a bit odd, but in fact, a dose of naloxone would have woken this boy up. Now, this is a real case, and in the real scenario, this little boy got intubated. He got an LP. He got a CT head. He got blood work up the yin-yang. He got admitted to the ICU. And later on, it was found out that his amoxicillin was actually mixed in the methadone container by accident at the pharmacy. And so he was an opioid overdose. But this, to me, is a classic, classic reminder that all patients with decreased level of awareness think of the universal antidotes, right? Think about our thiamine, oxygen, naloxone, and dextrose. Now, sure, not thiamine. We don't really give that to anybody anymore. Oxygen, everybody gets it. But at least when there's someone in front of you, whether it's an 18-month-old or an 80-year-old or anywhere in between, at least think about naloxone or check for an opioid toxidrome. And think about doing, you know, an AccuCheck for hypoglycemia. Because how many times have we seen people whisked off to the scanner for code stroke when really they had a glucose of 0.5, right? So I've seen that a couple of times. I've seen patients intubated, sent to the ICU, and later woken up with a dose of naloxone by the intensivist because it was an opioid overdose as well. So my message, and I try and teach residents this, and I try and remind people when I can, is anyone with a decreased level of awareness even if you're not suspecting an opioid overdose, like we certainly weren't in this patient, at least consider your universal antidote. So just a few reminders about the use of naloxone. The goal of using naloxone is to restore normal ventilation, not mental status, as Dr. Thurger mentioned. Start with a dose of 0.01 milligrams per kilogram in opiate patients, or 0.005 milligrams per kilogram, so half that, for patients with an unknown opiate history, increasing stepwise until a desired effect on the respiratory rate is obtained. Remember, you're going to be titrating to respiratory rate. Patients in a coma often do not respond to doses of less than 2 milligrams in an adult. However, there may be another toxin on board, and so reversing them fully may bring out the undesired effects of the other toxin, and you'll have a crazy thrashing around patient on your hands. Also, you can precipitate narcotic withdrawal in chronic narcotic users, causing severe myalgias, diarrhea, and agitation. Avoid repeat boluses in naloxone, since its effect wears off in about 30 to 60 minutes. Instead of doing the boluses, consider starting an infusion at about two-thirds of the converting dose as the hourly infusion rate. Remember that naloxone has a shorter half-life than most opiates. Dr. Thurger is going to go on to a second case now. 
Okay. So for those of you who thought acetaminophen was boring, hopefully this will change your mind. And you're probably thinking, oh, why is she telling me about this? I know exactly how to manage acetaminophen cases, and that is good. But here's an interesting one for you. So it's a 52-year-old male from rural Ontario, and the timeline is unclear, but we do know because of empty bottles and a receipt that he ingested about 400 tablets of extra-strength Tylenol. So you do the math, and that's about 200 grams, and it works out to be way more than our toxic dose of 150 milligrams per kilogram, right? So this gentleman ingested 2,860 milligrams per kilogram. So that's a good whack of Tylenol, okay? It's a slam dunk. We know what to do. He does, however, present in a coma, and he was hypotensive. So what are we going to do with this gentleman? He's going to get intubated. He's going to get ABCs. We're going to consider naloxone, our universal antidote. Excellent. And he does not respond to that. Remember, we're titrating to respirate on naloxone, not to pupils or CNS. He gets all of our supportive care. And then who's going to start NAC? So this is what I'm hopefully going to teach you. So this is a case of when NAC might not be enough. Okay, so this is a whopping dose of acetaminophen, and there's a few other things that we can do for this patient, and they're sort of becoming more popular and more thought of. So we certainly give NAC, but who has ever given fomepazole for toxic alcohols? Who's ever given it for acetaminophen? Who has ever dialyzed an acetaminophen patient? Okay, good. So these might be things that you might think, oh, Lisa Thurger's on crack. What is she talking about? Fomepazole doesn't go at all with acetaminophen. But I'm going to tell you a little bit why. So here's my one paper I'm going to talk to you about, and it is about rats. So basically, as you know, acetaminophen gets metabolized to NAPKI, that harmful product that gets deposited in the hepatocytes. And when you take too much of it, too much of it goes down that pathway. And the pathway is the P450 system, that terrible black box that we don't like to think about now that we're done med school. And specifically, acetaminophen is metabolized by CYP2E1. Funnily enough, Fomepazole is a CYP2E1 inhibitor. So if you give a dose of fomepazole, it will inhibit the CYP enzyme, and you will theoretically produce less NAPKI. Okay, so therefore less hepatotoxicity. And they poisoned these rats in four groups here with acetaminophen, and they gave one group a placebo or, or no fomepazole, and then two other different doses of fomepazole. And the rats that had the higher doses of fomepazole actually did well when they looked at the ALT and the AST. Now, you're not you know, measuring function and good outcome in these rats, but when you check their liver enzymes, they actually did much better with the fomepazole. So theoretically, fomepazole is something that we think about when you have a massive ingestion of acetaminophen. And it's something to keep in mind, and it might be something that if you were to call the poison center about one of these big, big overdoses, they may or may not recommend it. Now, for those pharmacologists in the audience, would anyone give a second dose of fomepazole? And if not, why? If one dose is good, why not more? So it's just kind of interesting. I like it. Because if you give one dose, it inhibits it. But if you actually give more than one dose, it induces CYP2E1. So you actually start producing more NAC. So it's just one dose of fomepazole, end of story. It's not BID dosing like we do with our toxic alcohols. So one dose of fomepazole, which is kind of cool. Okay, what about hemodialysis? I mean, I'm sure acetaminophen isn't on everyone's list of drugs to dialyze, right? It's not the, the ones that we learned in med school. But if you think about it, it's actually a small particle. It's water-soluble. In massive overdoses, it's not really that protein-bound. So you can dialyze it out, no problem. We just don't do it because we have such a good antidote, right? NAC is a great antidote. If you give NAC within the first eight hours, there are no proven 
problems or failures with that, except for in the maybe massive ingestions. But really, it's a great antidote. So we haven't needed anything else in the past. But if you end up with a massive acetaminophen ingestion, you may want to consider it. Because sometimes, again, the message here is that NAC just isn't enough. Okay, it's completely dialyzable, and it's something that you'd want to talk to your nephrologist about early, and they can sort of get, wrap their mind around it. You might be asking, what's a massive overdose? And there's no sort of defined number out there. I like to use 350 to 400 milligrams per kilogram, um, so certainly a lot less than this patient ingested. But if you have at least sort of a 400, 450 milligram per kilogram ingestion, Maybe try giving the poison center a call and see if they would suggest something else. Certainly also in acetaminophen patients who come in in coma or um, metabolic acidosis or any kind of more serious mitochondrial damage, then that's when you need to consider maybe the fomepazole and certainly the dialysis. Lessons learned. NAC is certainly a good antidote, and we all know to use it, but sometimes it might not be enough. And so it's a good reminder to maybe chat with the toxicologist on call at the Poison Center, and they can help guide you as to whether to get in touch with your nephrologist or to give a dose of fomepazole. So just a quick review here. For a massive acetaminophen overdose, or paracetamol if you're in Europe or down under, first, do your usual thing with NAC. But if the overdose is more than 350 to 400 milligrams per kilogram, call your poison control center and consider giving one dose of fomepazole. Remember, not two doses, but one dose of fomepazole and get your nephrologist on the phone to consider dialysis. Next, Dr. Thurger is going to give us a case of an altered patient who begins to seize and drops their pressure. All right, case three. So this is a 31-year-old who did overdose on some medications. He has a GCS of 13. He comes in tachycardic, maybe hypotensive, um, otherwise looking not too badly. He's drowsy, but breathing on his own. And then you see the following line. He's got big pupils, um, and they're kind of sluggish. He's dry. Um, he's got an altered mental status. What is this telling us? Anticholinergic, thank you. You do your ABCs, you start some fluids, and you do a 12-lead ECG, and this is what you see. We'll have this ECG in the written summary for you to look at. So in AVR, we see a tall R wave in AVR. We see a wide QRS. Whenever we see a wide QRS and a patient who's anticholinergic, it makes us think of sodium channel blocker and perhaps TCAs, because TCAs have seven fabulous mechanisms, one of which is they're anticholinergic, another one is which they're sodium channel blockers. And so this makes us think of that. And this patient's hypotensive, which is another one of those mechanisms. So we get a little bit worried. Then he starts seizing and goes super hypotensive. And now we're pretty sure that possibly some TCAs are on board. So besides checking our heart rate and getting a little bit worried, we move on to start managing this TCA overdose. Okay? And all of you in this room know how to do that. I'm not going to quiz you or pimp you on that. We know it involves fluids for hypotension. We know it involves sodium bicarboluses because of the sodium channel blockade and the wide QRS. That's the nice thing about TCAs is every single mechanism that that drug has it produces a clinical effect, which is kind of fun. So you can, you can totally anticipate what's going to happen or what might happen in these patients. Um, when they seize, we give benzodiazepines. That's because it's a GABA antagonist. They get dysrhythmias, possibly. We give fluids and vasopressors for the hypotension. And if they're super hyperthermic, we cool them a bit for their anticholinergic toxidrome. So here I'd like to do a quick review of the management of TCA overdose. Of course, first, it's your ABCs with a low threshold for intubation. Don't forget your GI decontamination. 
benzos, benzos, benzos for seizures, sodium bicarb boluses for a QRS of greater than 100 milliseconds or if they have dysrhythmias, fluids and vasopressors for hypotension, cooling for anticholinergic hyperthermia, and don't forget that physostigmine is contraindicated to treat the anticholinergic effects. But we still haven't got to the golden bullet yet. This case gets a little bit more complicated. But then he's still got a pressure of 60 over 40. He's still seizing in front of us. What else can we do? So you could do hypertonic saline. Why would we give hypertonic saline? When they actually poisoned pigs or dogs, I can't remember which, way back in the 60s with sodium channel blockade, they compared hypertonic saline and sodium bicarb and placebo. And the sodium bicarb patients did better. But you're absolutely right. If you get to the point where you're so alkalemic in that patient, you can definitely use hypertonic saline, 100%. Good. What else can we do? Interlipid. Why not give it a try? In the literature, it's obviously a sure thing, and it's pretty much proven that it is the antidote for local anesthetic toxicity. So the anesthetists love it. They give too much of their little local anesthetic or their block and they have intralipid to save them, right? It's been proven on adults or on humans and in animals. In our world, the tox world and the eMERGE world, it's obviously we've done some animal studies looking at what if these animals overdose on lipophilic or lipid-loving drugs, can we help them? And now there's more case reports in the literature as well of use in human scenarios when these people ingest certain drugs. The most notable, I think, or the most convincing is this, this study by Siriani, who looked at a patient who ingested Welbutrin and Lamotrigine, both very lipophilic drugs. Um, and she was seizing and hypotensive and, and actually coded, and they ran the code for about an hour. And then I think an anesthetist resident walked by and said, why don't you try intralipid? And they gave a dose of intralipid, and within a minute she had a pulse. So... Believe it or not, there are a lot of studies out there as convincing as that. It seems to be the Nazareth. It seems to be quite convincing. There's obviously publication bias, right? So people don't publish the studies where um, they don't get a pulse back because that's not very interesting. But it's intriguing, right? It's out there. People are thinking about it, okay? So what should we use it for? I mean, certainly for local anesthetic toxicity, we definitely use it, okay? I once had a kid who was getting a circumcision, and he got 10 times the dose of lidocaine, and he started seizing from lidocaine toxicity. So we advised it for that, along with other things. But there are lipophilic drugs that we suggested as well, and that are shown as case studies in the literature. And these are our TCAs, some of the beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, haloperidol, and also bupropion is a big one in the literature as well. Okay. So think about it when you see these drugs. It's pretty easy to do. You just take a bag of intralipid, a 50 mil syringe, and you're tubing, and you're ready to go. The protocol is, looks a little complicated. It's a 1.5 mil per kilo bolus, but really, if you look at the practical in the average 70 kilo patient, you bolus 100 mils, and then you hang the rest of the bag over 15 minutes. It's super, super easy. A couple caveats, though, and the reason I bring up this antidote is that people now are catching on to intralipid and they want to give it for everything and they want to give it early. So my main caveat is don't give it before you give all your regular measures. Okay, so for your calcium channel blockers, don't give it before you give fluids and calcium and high-dose insulin, okay? 
Use it at the end of that before the patient gets too sick, but don't let it start at the very top because there have been cases where people are giving it right off the bat, and then if the patient is seizing, the intralipid actually may be binding the benzos, and you can't actually control their seizures because you're losing the benzo effect. So make sure you give it a full try with all of our other conventional and regular and standard treatments for these overdoses, and then for those certain drugs that I listed, make sure that you at least consider it. Talk to the poison center, ask if it's indicated, but don't give it too soon, but try not to give it too late. So giving intralipids pretty easy. You take a 500cc bag, you give 100cc of it in a bolus, and then you hang the rest of the bag over 15 minutes. Remember the big caveat that Dr. Thurger pointed out is that you should be giving it after you've done your ABC, supportive therapy, universal antidotes, and specific antidotes, all the usual stuff that you would do for a toxin. Then you should consider giving intralipid therapy rather than giving it off the bat and then forgetting to do all the rest of the stuff. And the overdoses that you want to consider it in are verapamil, diltiazem, haldol, TCAs, bupropion, and propanolol. Interestingly, there was just a study published called Asystole Immediately Following Intravenous Fat Emulsion for Overdose in the Journal of Medical Toxicology in February 2014, and they described two patients who suddenly had a cardiac arrest after being given lipid emulsion therapy. While this didn't show any causation, it does demonstrate that lipid emulsion therapy isn't a magic bullet and won't work in every severe overdose case. Uh, Next case. This is a 40-year-old male who comes to the emergency department, and he says he has a history of depression, he's got chronic back pain, he's run out of his medications, he takes oxycodone, and he takes Welbutrin, and he's asking if you can fill his prescriptions. This never happens, I'm sure, to any of you, just to me. And so I'm all about helping people with their medications, but some people say, you know what, I'm not going to give this guy his narcotics, that he's just going to sell them on the street, he's clearly abusing them. All right, I'll I'll give you your Welbutrin, because clearly you need that for your depression, but there's no way I'm giving you oxycodone. Thoughts on that? So people are snorting Welbutrin and they're injecting Welbutrin these days. And it's kind of the new hottest drug on the street right now. So bupropion, the pills are crushed, people snort it, they're crushed and they're liquefied and they inject it, and it actually gives them like a cocaine high. It helps extend their co- the life of the cocaine so they do it together, and then when they run out of their cocaine or can't afford their cocaine, they just do Welbutrin. So it is an item on the street, it's being purchased, and people are getting a lot of the wounds associated with the injection of this drug. Not quite like crocodile, which some of you may have heard of, and I'm not going to talk about that here, but there are wounds associated with the drug. And we'll put an image of the wounds that some patients get when they abuse Welbutrin on the written summary so that you can recognize it next time you have someone come in asking for a Welbutrin subscription. So just be wary of Welbutrin. It's just a little bit about being in the know about what's out there and what's desired. And be wary of someone wanting um, unexplained refill on their prescription of Welbutrin. All right, so a few quick tips. I'm done with the cases, but just a reminder about a couple presentations that are scary to me. So I've probably had more deaths from ASA in my experience as a toxicologist on call than any other drug. And people think it's kind of harmless because it's an over-the-counter drug and how bad can it really be? But ASA is scary. Be afraid of ASA. This is a young girl who took a bunch of ASA. Um, She comes in at 8.30. 
Her vitals are as you see there. She's got a respirate of 32, and to me, a respirate of 35 or higher is ASA toxicity till proven otherwise, right? Just like a respirate of six is opioid toxicity till proven otherwise, okay? You do an ASA level and it's 3.3, and if you think back, you're like, oh, well, that's indication for urine alkalization. Boom, done, slam dunk, I've got my diagnosis, I know how to treat her, she's getting urine alkalization. Woohoo, off to medicine. What's my biggest pitfall here? But what might happen to that level of 3.3? A repeat level is key, okay? So ASA is one of those drugs that forms a, a ball in your gut, and it keeps releasing ASA. So that level is not reliable. ASA, along with a couple other drugs, you need repeat levels. So always, always, always send Q2-hour levels on your ASA toxicities, or you're going to miss this level of 9.3 that popped up. Unfortunately, this level just continued to rise, and despite urine alkalization um, and nephroconsulted, didn't quite make it down on time, this unfortunate girl died. She was super, super sick. But to me, the rising levels are important, and people often forget to throw in an extra ASA level, a couple extra levels, because you don't know what it's going to do. It could certainly be going up. Okay, so pitfalls in ASA management, along with remembering to get another level, you have to work up all your metabolic acidoses. If you're not alkalizing the urine well enough, you're not going to treat it, and you need to always add potassium to that to make that happen, because these patients are hypokalemic. Okay, so just a few reminders about ASA. So the key pearls there are first... A patient who presents with a suspected overdose who has a respiratory rate of more than 35 should make you consider an ASA overdose until proven otherwise, just like a respiratory rate of less than 6 should trigger the consideration of an opiate overdose unless proven otherwise. The second pearl is to make sure you send 2 Q-hour levels of ASA in all these patients. In terms of the biggest pitfalls, the main ones are inadequate urine alkalization, not correcting the hypokalemia, failure to hyperventilate causing hypoventilation, and a delay in starting dialysis. And one more case to remind us about something. This is a 17-year-old male who had a seizure at a rave, was seizing, and then the seizing stopped, but came into the department hypertensive, tachycardic, and had a temperature of 40.8. So the vitals for this patient were a blood pressure of 170 on 100, a heart rate of 120, a respiratory rate of 18, and a temperature of 40.8. The patient was diaphoretic with a supple neck, no rash, and no focal signs. What's going to kill this patient? Which is the most scariest vital sign? Be afraid of this temperature, unlike in kids, where Dr. Goldman told us it doesn't matter if they're 38 or 41, it's just a temperature. However, in toxicology, the golden rule is that, so this patient unfortunately died. Their temperature wasn't managed appropriately and it wasn't treated aggressively. And in the end, this patient died from doing ecstasy, methylene dioxymethamphetamine, MDMA. The problem is ecstasy is a big culprit for hyperthermia. And any time you have a temperature greater than 40.5 degrees in toxicology or because of a toxicologic cause, you have a 75% chance of mortality. Not good odds. Okay? So the message here I want to put out is the hot and crazy patient. Any patient that has a temperature that's super, super high, they need aggressive cooling. And you need to get on the phone to your poison center and ask about ways to help do that. This is a little plug for all the poison centers across Canada. Call any one of them. Call one in your province, and there's always a toxicologist on call and the nurses on call who answer the phones who can help guide your management of these patients. So those were some great general tox pearls that Dr. Thurger went through. 
Remember that for massive Tylenol overdoses, you should think about giving Fomepasol and taking the patient to hemodialysis. For TCA overdoses, think about using intralipid. Remember to do it only after all your other supportive measures. In other words, intralipid is an adjunct, not a first-line medication, especially if the patient's seizing. Because if you give intralipid early, it can bind to the benzodiazepine and make it difficult to control seizures. Remember that Welbutrin or Bupropion is a drug of abuse. It gives you a cocaine high when injected IV, and you can sometimes recognize it by seeing particular wounds on the patient arm. Remember that in an ASA overdose, which kills a lot of people, the initial ASA level is not reliable, and you need to repeat the ASA level every two hours. A delay in dialysis is one of the more common causes of premature death in ASA overdose. If you have a hot and crazy patient, especially if their temp is over 40.5, those patients have a high mortality and you need to start aggressive cooling fast. Cold brains, unmoved, untouched, unglued, alone at last. Next up in our highlights of the 2014 Whistler Conference, we have Dr. Joel Yaffe, who's going to talk a bit about his favorite articles from 2013. First up, he's going to talk about tranexamic acid use for epistaxis. Now, tranexamic acid, we've talked about many times before on emergency medicine cases, the CRASH-2 trial and trauma. We talked about it in our ENT emergencies. But here, Dr. Yaffe is going to talk about one specific study that convinced him to use tranexamic acid for patients with epistaxis. You know, we should probably try new stuff sometimes. This study I really like. This is a study which looked at the use of topical tranexamic acid uh, for nosebleeds. And this was a group from Iran. They published uh, in 2013. What they did was uh, they looked at a bunch of people who came in with pretty uncomplicated anterior epistaxis. They had a lot of exclusions, which I think we would want to exclude people with coagulopathies, people with major trauma, people who had a visible bleeding vessel, which I think it was good that they excluded them, and I'll show you why. And um, they had two groups. They had an intervention group where they put, uh, they took a 15-centimeter pledget, I don't know how exactly they did it, and put it in somebody's nose. Uh, they soaked it in tranexamic acid, and they left it there until the bleeding stopped. And then they had another group that they treated with, um, with tetracycline-impregnated anterior packing. So they put in an anterior pack and left it there for three days. And everything that they pre-specified, all of their endpoints, there was a difference. So there was the bleeding stopped more quickly, there was less re-bleeding, they got out of the eMERGE more quickly, and they liked it more than with the packing. And it's pretty impressive. Other people had kind of done similar stuff, didn't find quite the same difference, but these guys seem to. You know, there's one thing that you need to just take with a grain of salt. I think a lot of us would not necessarily take all our anterior nosebleeds and pack them. So the differences might have been magnified by the fact that they were packing a lot of people who maybe didn't need to be packed. So that may not be quite the standard of care. They didn't use nasal tampons, so that's going to affect timing. And they didn't control for the... We don't know anything about 
if the two groups were different and how badly they were bleeding. But on the other hand, they didn't take advantage of the fact that these people didn't need to come back for a recheck in three days, which is a good thing. So for me, I think this is worth a go. It's not expensive. Uh, at our hospital, and, we're, and probably if you're at a trauma center, it's cheaper, but at our hospital, the cost is about uh, $9.5 for a one-gram vial. You could use half of that. And the nasal tampons, we buy for about uh, five seventy-five each. So the difference is not that huge. So I think it's a good one. So this article was called A New and Rapid Method for Epistaxis Treatment Using Injectable Form of Tranexamic Acid Topically a randomized controlled trial out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in September 2013. Remember that there's very little downside for tranexamic acid, even when it's given IV, as shown in the CRASH-2 and other trials. What some docs at North York General Hospital, where I work, are doing is taking some gel foam and dipping it in the tranexamic acid, letting it soak there for a bit, and then placing it in the nose with a clamp for about five minutes. If you don't have access to the injectable form of tranexamic acid, alternatively, you can use a single 500 milligram pill of cyclocapron, which is tranexamic acid in Canada, and dissolve it in 10 to 15 mils of sterile water to make a slurry to then apply to the nasal mucosa. Next, Dr. Yaffe is going to talk about the now famous TTM trial. targeted temperature management. So this is a study I'm sure a lot of you have heard of. This was uh, recently published in the New England Journal. And um, the background of this is, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, a couple of papers came out which really changed the way we do post-resuscitation care. So now we cool our post-resuscitation patients who have altered levels of alertness. And uh, this has become standard in the resuscitation guidelines. But there were these lingering questions about... How important is the cooling versus prevention of hyperthermia? Because a lot of the patients in the original studies uh, actually went hyperthermic in the control group, and that might have made things bad. So this was a huge randomized controlled study. It had more patients than the other studies put together. Uh, so they had about 950 adults, GCS less than eight, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and they had to have a return of circulation for at least 20 minutes. And... Um, they had to be seen within six hours. It, the only people that were really excluded were is if you had a cardiac arrest and the first rhythm was a systole and you were unwitnessed, they didn't count those people. So if they happened to come across dead people, they didn't randomize them. But it was a, it was a, a well-done study, and they had two groups. They actively cooled both groups, one to 33, one to 36. They kept them cold for about 28 hours, and then they let them gradually warm up. And... What they found was uh, they had two endpoints that they were measuring, a primary and a secondary, no difference in either. So the primary endpoint was all-cause mortality, which was 50% versus 48%. And the secondary outcome was poor neurologic function or death at 180 days, which was 54% versus 52%, a non-significant difference. So they didn't find that cooling to 33 was any better than cooling to 36. And their conclusions were, and this is their conclusion, in unconscious survivors of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, uh, hypothermia at 33 did not confer a benefit as a, compared to 36 degrees. So one wasn't better than the other. This 
is driving everybody crazy because everybody was just getting used to cooling to 32 to 34, and now people are saying, what do we do? Everybody, like really smart people, agree this is a well-done study, methodologically. Well-done study. But there's a lot of stuff in the background. If you look at their outcomes, they're way better than things were 10 years ago when the other papers were done. So critical care, the stuff that's going on upstairs, has added a whole dimension uh, that we really can't measure well. So it might not all be about temperature. The other problem is that they all acknowledge that within this cooling group, there are probably some patients who might benefit from being colder. There are some benefits that might be harmed by being colder. And there's probably some patients that are either so well or so ill that whatever you do temperature-wise doesn't matter. So uh, there's a lot of unanswered questions. I suspect that a bunch of you are at sites that are trying to reevaluate your cooling protocols. I think there is one take-home message, which is that everybody, if you fit the criteria, should be cooled. So a couple of people said, oh, yeah, we don't even bother cooling anymore. That's not, you can't do that. Because if you don't do that, a lot of your patients are going to go hyperthermic, and that's bad. So they all need to be cooled to at least 36 degrees. And you should probably, at an institutional level, discuss your targets. Maybe the way to go is that the really smart people in ICU who have the, the kind of finesse may decide, I think this person's going to be harmed by more aggressive cooling. I think this person can tolerate and needs more aggressive cooling. But they don't, they don't have a lot of data to help them make their decisions either. It's harder, potentially harder, to keep people at 36 degrees than to keep them at 33 degrees. Because at 36, they shiver, and it's a whole other level of difficulty controlling. Um, we don't know what protocol these guys used to, uh, to do their cooling. Apparently, they've kept it under wraps because it might get published. So again, the take-home point here is avoid hyperthermia. You still need to actively cool to a target of probably somewhere between 34 and 36 degrees, depending on what your ICU folks suggest. Next, Dr. Yaffe is going to talk about return to sport after minor head injury. Slow it down, Angie, come back to bed. Rest your arms, rest your legs. This is just a simple review article by Charles Tatter, who's one of the you know, foremost researchers in sports-related head injuries. Uh, it's on concussion. It's just a short review article on concussion. The reason I put it up, he puts a line in there, and he says, you know what? It's standard practice now for every concussed person to be removed from participation, active participation, and to be evaluated by a medical doctor. And that medical doctor, nine times out of ten, is going to be you. So we're the people that are going to see a lot of people acutely with concussions, and they're going to say to us, what do I do? It gives us tips for management strategy, and really what we're doing is secondary prevention, which is to tell people to rest, remove them from play in school. If David Carr got a, got a, a concussion, he would be in withdrawal because he wouldn't be able to text for a couple of days. But what you need is something like this, is a return to uh, a graduated return to play sheet. So this article is entitled Concussions and Their Consequences, Current Diagnosis, Management, and Prevention from CMAJ in 2013. It's a review article that's really handy for the practicing ED doc. 
And it's especially useful for counseling patients who have had a minor head injury in terms of when they can return to sport. So the protocol for graduated return to play is the following six steps with at least 24 hours between each step and progression only after symptoms completely resolve. So number one is no activity. That's complete cognitive and physical rest. Number two is light aerobic exercise. That's walking, swimming, or stationary cycling. Number three is sport-specific exercise with the exclusion of head impact activities. Number four is non-contact training drills. Number five is full contact practice only after a physician has re-examined the patient. And number six, finally, is return to normal play. The other thing to note is that there should be a slower progression from step one through six in children and youth. On the blog post in the written summary, we'll have links to Parachute Canada, which give you assessment tools for minor head injury. Last article, I want to talk about Jeff Tyberg. For those of you who don't know who Jeff Tyberg is, he's an emergency physician who's the chief of the emergency department at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto. So, first of all, Jeff Tyberg, best dad in the entire world. So, Sunday morning, he's out here with his 16 year old, gets up at three in the morning because his son's a hockey nut goes to the bar, lines up to get in to take his son to the, to the uh, gold medal hockey game. Great guy. But Jeff came to me earlier today and said, you know, I don't think I can moderate this panel. He said, I, I got this headache. And um, we talked, and it started yesterday, and over 45 minutes or so, it, it was bugging him, and it's been there ever since. He said, what do you think? I, I, I said, first of all, you're going to get your ass in there, and you're going to moderate the panel because we don't have anybody else. He said, but what about the headache? And I didn't tell him then what I'm going to tell him now. I said, Jeff, as soon as you're finished, you have to go down to Vancouver, and you need to get a CT and an LP because you could have a subarachnoid hemorrhage. But I didn't want to tell him that then because we need him for the next few minutes. So here's the paper. This is clinical decision rules to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage for acute headache. So this is done by a veritable Canadian brain trust, uh, Jeff Perry, Marco Civlotti, um, Ian Steele, these are like big hitters. And they did a multi-center study, 10 hospitals, a lot of patients. They wanted to kind of evaluate and validate some previous rules that they had put together, this clinical decision rules to decide who with a subarachnoid hemorrhage needs to be investigated and perhaps maybe modify and improve the rules. So they got a huge cohort of adult patients greater than 16 who had a headache that reached its maximal intensity within an hour. They had to be well, no neurologic deficits, and GCS and had to be within two weeks of onset. And they didn't take people with trauma, didn't take people with recurrent headaches, no brain tumors, the kind of people that we would like to see. And they collected a whole bunch of data on these patients, looked to see who had subarachnoids, either through their index visit and hospitalization or through follow-up. They define their subarachnoid as follows, if they had blood on CT, if they had xanthochromia, or if they had any cells with, an, with a lesion, with an aneurysm. And they crunched all their numbers together 
and they came up with this rule. And they said, if you have any of these things, and if you use this rule, the sensitivity for subarachnoid hemorrhage is 100%. Specificity is only 15%. So there's some problems here. A poorly specific study, it actually resulted in an increase in investigations, which is a problem for us to begin with. They still had the same, again, they let people do what they wanted. They probably had a big LP gap. They didn't LP a lot of the people who maybe needed to. That's Maybe it doesn't speak to the study, but it speaks to practice. It's really not clear. They didn't tell us whether they missed any subarachnoids or not by letting people do what they wanted to do. So there's a lot of data that we don't have. So I don't know whether they, using these rules or, or people doing what they did, whether their sensitivity was a problem to begin with. So for me... This doesn't do it for me. I'm not sure that I'm going to take every 40-year-old who has a headache and they say, yeah, it, would, it hit its peak for, at 45 minutes. I'm not sure I'm going to um, uh, do a, a CT and an LP on them. So, Jeff, you're okay. And even the authors say, okay, this one's not ready yet. I, I did this one because I think that we need to be aware that these rules are out there. We need to critically look at them because there's a lot of big names. So just to review, the derived decision rule is to investigate if the patient has any of the following, age greater than 40, neck pain or stiffness, witness loss of consciousness, onset during exertion, thunderclap headache, or limited flexion on exam. Again, the problem with the study here is that the specificity was only 15%, very, very low. The baseline investigation rate was about 85%, and the investigation rate with the decision rule was also about 85%. So again, this decision rule is not ready for prime time, and even the authors note that implementation studies are required before the rule should be used in clinical practice. Now, despite the opinion that this clinical decision rule shouldn't guide your practice, I do find that the list of features in the clinical decision rule are useful for teaching purposes to learn about some of the important clinical features when you're assessing a patient who you think might have a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So here's my wrap-up. I think there is reason to try tranexamic acid for anterior nosebleeds. We want to continue to cool post-arrest patients. The temperature is questionable, but cool them to something. Have some printed handouts for return to work and play for concussion patients. And I think uh, clinical decision rules for subarachnoids, I don't think we're there yet. Well, that about wraps it up for episode 44 on the Whistler Highlights. Before we go, just a bit of housekeeping with the new website. Please do email me at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com with any feedback you might have about the new website. We really value your feedback to try and make EM cases even better than it is. And please take advantage of our new feature like next time on EM cases where you can ask your question to our experts before we record the podcast. And if it's a good question... We'll ask the question in the podcast, and then you'll get your answer when you listen to the podcast. Finally, I hope to see a lot of you at EMU, Emergency Medicine Update, North York General Hospital's Emergency Conference, which is the biggest conference in Canada. There'll be some great workshops, hands-on airway workshops. There's orthopedic workshops. There's some great plenary sessions with Walter Himmel, Stuart Swadron, Amal Matu, Eric Latofsky, 
and I'll be speaking there on how to read CT heads. So until next time, I'll leave you with the extended version of the theme I wrote for emergency medicine cases. Next up in our Whistler highlights will be Dr. Thurger on toxicologic pearls and pitfalls.